Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trial Up, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial on Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find them on Twitter at Trial on Cinema. You can find us on Twitter at Trial of Podcast. My name is Jason Daphnis, and I can be found on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. I'm on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Kind Hearts and Coronets is the film we're going to be discussing today, 1949 British film. Uh, and I'm going to let Aaron sort of take it away with the summary and and some deets to get us kicked off. Yeah, uh, Kind Hearts, Coronets, nailed it with a director in the year 1949, uh, director Robert Hamer. Uh, it tells the story of the 10th Duke of Chalfont, uh, Louis Mazzini, uh, played by Dennis Price, uh, as he sits in prison awaiting his execution for the crime of murder. Um, while he is in prison, he is writing down his life story, uh, his memoir, covers his entire life, um, starting with his birth. Uh, his father died when, right when he was born, and his mother, uh, who was uh, an heir to a rich and important family, um, died later on. Um, and she had nevertheless, nevertheless, despite being an heir to the rich and important family, was disowned by that same family for uh, marrying uh, her husband, who is someone of a lower class that she uh, loved uh, despite that. Um, Her kind of mistreatment uh, from her family so upsets Louis that when he is older, he conspires to murder all of the other uh, nine remaining members of her family, uh, all played by Alec Guinness, so that he may himself become Duke and inherit the family's uh, wealth and position and kind of prove himself uh, as a person. Um, it was uh, based on a, a novel called Israel Rank, the Autobiography of a Criminal uh, by, who is that author again? Roy Horniman. Roy uh, Horniman, uh, Roy author Horniman. emeritus. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, 1940. I, I grew up watching this movie. I don't know if anybody else, it sounds like I was the only person who had seen this movie. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. So a lot of it was like, I don't know, very like new feeling to me, but I had seen this when I was younger and had somewhat familiarity with it. I don't know if I'm alone in that. Uh, yeah, you'll get your chance to sort of reflect. Um, I want to start since we're trying this thing where we do a standard introduction series, I'd like to just start by getting your overall opinion, take view of the film, and then we can dive into more specifics later, uh, starting with, uh, uh, our basic lineup. Um, starting with Cody, is that, uh, is that a mutual? Sure. Leading off the the basic lineup, uh, Jason, I just want to say that it's a true honor. Um, I knew nothing about Kind Hearts and Coronets going in. I don't know who cut together that trailer that has been showing at the Trilon for however many months. Um, they did a great job, kind of um, displaying this as a like a, a more or kind of modernizing the story um, in a way that 
is maybe or maybe not warranted. We'll get into it. Um, but it made me excited to see it. Um, and uh, the Letterboxd community seemed to like it. Um, overall, I like my impression of it was was very good. Um, the <laughs> the the whole actor playing multiple characters thing is definitely a trope. Um, it's not necessarily one that this movie uh, leans into um, egregiously, and that was something that I really appreciated. Um, there's a lot to like about it, um, but yeah, like Jason said, we'll get into specifics. But yeah, uh, I enjoyed my time with Kind Hearts and Cornets. I think. Uh, Co- or Harry, do you want to take next? Sure, I guess. Um, I had somewhat complicated feelings about it. Um, I think I was a little bit predisposed against it perhaps because I, uh, without giving away your feelings, maybe Jason, I think both you and Cody had expressed some reservations about how much you enjoyed it before I got the chance to see it. Uh, and because not to, uh, reveal the circumstances of our recording, but it is uh, Sunday evening and I'm crabby because I have to go to work tomorrow and I don't want to. Right. Uh, but you that, okay, being, man? How's it going? that being said, um, I enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I had an interesting relationship with it in the sense that uh, about halfway through, even I was struggling to reconcile the fact that um, politically and thematically, this is right up my alley. Um, And in terms of craft and craft sensibility, it is not. Um, It's doing a couple of things that I really don't enjoy a movie doing. Um, The most egregious of which, in my opinion, is the overarching, um, narration that runs throughout the film that I really um, am historically not a fan of and was uh, quite hit or miss for me. Um, You can always tell when a, when a movie is based on a book and that is no more clear ever, I think than it is um, in this screenplay. Um, That being said though, I think that uh, by the end I felt very positively about it. um, And I thought that it was actually um, rather clever and even a lot more nuanced and uh, damning than I would have given it credit for, uh, particularly for being a movie set in or uh, made in the late 40s. Um, so sorry, that's sort of a long answer, but uh, I like this movie a lot, even though um, it does a couple of things that I wish it didn't. Thanks. Uh, Aaron, you've got, I think, probably the longest um, tenure with this movie, right? You said you'd seen it when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean a while ago right like this is not a movie i grew up watching all the time it's just a movie that i had seen and had a somewhat favorable memory of i guess uh but seeing it at a young age before i really you know i don't know i liked a lot of dumb shit when i was younger so what are you gonna do but uh i i quite like this watching it i think it it very much fits in my wheelhouse i think i kind of agree with harry there where um, I think thematically, this movie is doing a lot of really interesting stuff. I think especially for its time, uh, it is pretty edgy, it feels to me. Uh, you know, this is a movie about a man committing multiple murders, and those are often portrayed uh, in a comedic light, right? Very lighthearted. Um, this is a movie about a guy who is fucking another dude's wife the entire movie right uh and also kind of wooing different women uh specifically uh to kind of climb socially and and to climb and and attain higher status as well a lot of that is a little more common these days and and maybe with certain 
certainly common in certain movies uh, from that time period, but it feels like a movie that was probably pretty edgy. Uh, that's one thing that uh, Hamer had even mentioned in regard to why he uh, filmed this movie and why he chose this script. Um, I f- respond to a lot of that really well. Uh, I quite actually like the narration in this movie. I know that uh, films have kind of moved away from this style of narration. Um, I think it generally works pretty well. I like the idea of uh, an unreliable narrator, uh, specifically uh, in this kind of darker style. Uh, a lot of my favorite books are in that manner as well. Um, and I think that this doesn't play with that element too much, but there are kind of hints of that uh, in here as well that I, I find really fascinating. So I, I generally really liked it, apart from uh, a scene or two at the end that had some wild use of ethnic slurs. Uh, but other than that, uh, I like the like the movie. Yeah, uh, it should be said, I I guess this is the first time we've addressed it in a, in a film directly, but this movie brings up uh, the N-word slur multiple times near the end of the film. Uh, apparently when it was Americanized, when it was brought to the to this country, it was um, that was edited to replace the word with a benign term. But uh, it really bizarre left field thing. I was just kind of gobsmacked right near the end. Uh, it's not used directly pejoratively, but it is used as part of like a folk phrase. Um, I guess worth mentioning. Uh, it it feels weird because I think this movie, uh, you know, it's what, it's 70 years old at this point. This movie does feel e- very fresh even in the way that it hand- handles gender politics, class politics. Uh, and then that scene comes out of nowhere and it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, people are real shitty sometimes right right um, there had so, to yeah. be there had to be something um yeah, i was remarking to Co- i was remarking to cody earlier that in a movie where one character where one human plays so many different characters uh and in fact is like one gender swapped character uh in one instance it's amazing that they didn't opt to like put him in brown face or blackface. like there are movies that were made dozens of years after this movie that opted to do that <laughs> like in the case of uh most, I guess, relevantly for our conversations is at the end of Hopscotch with Walter Matthau. They just threw him in in uh, in traditional Indian garb and and a, a beard and brown face and everything. It's just nonsense. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it comes out of nowhere. Uh, it's, I guess, not super tonally inconsistent with the rest of the movie, but it's not really something that, that had been teed up, just considered, I guess, so socially normal in 1949. Um I want to dig a little bit into uh, what both Harry and Aaron and, and to Cody to an extent mentioned uh, worked for you, which were sort of the political leanings and social commentary of this movie. It is, of course, a tale of uh, somebody born to with a certain quote unquote birthright in mind um, and his uh, like violent endeavors to get back into that world uh, to uh, reclaim his birthright, to become Duke of chalfont uh and but it does that with like of course the tools that it's using are um are comedy right like it's a lot of it turns madcap at times uh and sometimes it's very like darkly darkly serious uh but through it all it seems like you both found common ground in the idea that it is making a single statement right about uh about class about its about like there's a certain traitorship to the character, I think, in what I was in what I was seeing. Um, but I'll let since you guys both brought it up, I'll let you uh, I'll let you suss it out. Yeah, I mean, I'll 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 let Harry go because I, I think oh, Harry. No, may I was just, I was just going to say, um, Jason, yeah. you neglected to give your opinion on the movie yourself. Oh yeah, what the fuck, dude? Very very strategically. I 
Bro. I don't know that I felt. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for calling it out. I I don't feel like I was as strongly pot or like pro. Yes. It's uh it's being very smart and pointed in its political messaging and its social messaging as, as Harry and Aaron. That's why I wanted to dig a little bit more into that before giving my like bigger thoughts. Uh, I thought that it was occasionally very quite funny, often far too dry for me to like actually find it very funny. Uh, and yet weirdly some of the funnier stuff is I think some of the drier stuff. Um, I think that uh, the I don't remember the name of the lead actor, but whoever played Lewis or Louis, uh, Dennis Price, sorry. Um, I think I would have preferred a Peter Sellers type in that role where it's a little clearer where he's, when he's trying to be funny, because like Harry was saying, it's written in such a way sometimes that uh, it will it, it's often like almost too dry, too, too wry and witty to be immediately apparent as like as an, as, as a play at comedy, I guess. Uh, and if you could see that more on the main character's face, I think it would have landed a little better. Often he just, often he's just like being very, I guess, coy being very arch. And it's like, Oh, well that was supposed to be funny. And I didn't quite buy it. Maybe that was just my viewing experience. Maybe that's just my own tendencies, but it did not always land for me. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, this may be kind of, goes against popular thinking about this film. I wouldn't really call it a comedy per se. I do think there are moments that are very funny in it. Um, but I think it is, uh, you know, there are elements of social satire and I did laugh at, at quite a few moments. I, this is not like, uh, you know, when I, when I think of films that were kind of being very edgy and pushing boundaries about kind of taboo subjects that are very funny, you know, arsenic on old lace, uh, is a movie that I think does that more effectively, um, I think specifically with with the main character of Louis, um, I, I think his characterization really worked and that he is kind of a a very cold, like kind of sociopathic character um, that very clearly is only putting on um, kind of charming appearances when he needs to. And I, I do like how he'll talk to somebody and he'll come off as very charming. And then the minute that person leaves, he just his demeanor drops immediately. Um it's yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it funny, although there are elements of that, but I think it, it works in the film. Yeah. That, that coldness is exactly like part of his character, right? He's rich. He's aloof. He's cold. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, to that effect, um, I mean, uh, agreeing with Harry that the, the narrations in this movie really took me out, um, did not really care for those a whole lot. And maybe like to Dennis Price's credit, uh, his on-screen performance, I thought, was was good. Um, I I think maybe if you got somebody more engaging or more willing to inflect, not just like even have different inflections when qu the quote-unquote bits are supposed to land, but just to inflect at all, uh, which he neglected to do uh a lot of the time um maybe i would maybe those narrations would come off differently um maybe people like the narrations in this movie in general uh i'm not really sure i wasn't really a sensibility i cared for um but i i guess the one thing that that supreme dryness did do for me was that there there were bits that did that did land um both spoken through narration and on screen so whether intentional or unintentional um just kind of cruising along with no with no sort of like you know i'm is a uh, you can't see me what i'm doing with my hand i'm doing like a sine wave so like the the ups and downs um 
as opposed to flatlining, which is kind of how I felt uh, while listening to this dude. Um, but when, I don't know, the, the bits that were supposed to land, I think did land. There just weren't too many of them. And I didn't feel engaged kind of in between those, those peaks, if that makes sense. Um, I think this movie's very funny and I love Dennis Price's performance. So that's interesting. Hit us. Hit us. Uh, no, I just, I guess I just like uh, dry British humor. I think that this is a really prime example of it. Um, and I think that the way the script is written actually works for it really well on both like comedic and thematic levels. Like this whole movie is such a sort of ironic, dark piss take that I think that, um, the, the dryness of his character speaks really well to his sort of homecoming. Um, and, and the central sort of dual twist irony of his characterization um, works really well with it, um, in my opinion. And so I guess the, the sensibility that I didn't like was specifically probably interjecting the narration um, throughout actual scenes at times. Uh, I felt that it maybe could have taken a backseat at certain times then. Um, and uh, I didn't get an unreliable narration from this i think that's interesting i mean like obviously that's one of my favorite literary devices um i just didn't think it was deployed here but that's an um i would be interested to rewatch this movie with that in mind um but uh oh. i guess i just thought it was i thought it was pretty funny like i was i was laughing i was chuckling uh, I don't, but specifically with the unre unreliable narration, I don't think that he is specifically lying about anything. I think that what he is presenting uh, is not 100% complete. And I think there are uh, moments, especially near the end of the film, I think specifically with uh, the way that he handles the character of, uh, is it Lionel? Yes, Lionel, uh, played by John Penrose, who is a good kind of dope Um I think that, that there is a moment when it is revealed that his relationship with Lionel uh, is, has been um, kind of antagonistic for maybe longer than the movie has originally let on. I don't think that is a situation where the main character is lying about that. I think that sure. it is not something that he brought up until that point, and it's very clear that a lot of his hatred of that character goes back to mistreatment uh, yeah. from his childhood based on class and based on, you know, mostly class differences. That's a really, really good point, actually. Um, like, even if, if we're not using the, the term uh, unreliable narrator in the classical sense, this is a point of view film. Uh, and it's particularly the point of view of the man as Duke, which he wasn't, like, which the whole point of the movie is that he wasn't when the movie started. But we get to see his uh, internal monologue and his thinking develop, not as the boy who was the clerk who was dreaming perhaps unconsciously of becoming the Duke, but as the Duke reflecting, which is a completely alternative point of view that is not of the character we spend most of the film with, right? The, even the recollection itself is a really important um, framing and staging device for this. And I think that's a really good thing to point out. Um, something that I uh, didn't fully like think about until you made that point. So that's really interesting. I, I don't know how how this is all impacting how I thought of, like the idea that he is I mean the whole thing of course is in narration I didn't I also didn't get an unreliable narrator thing I got a very pompous but believable like who who else knows the story thing because clearly it is like a POV tale as Harry's saying but like 
the times when that breaks for me, the times when it doesn't quite work, when it doesn't explain some of the things that I don't like is when it gets like this movie, we call it a dry British humor, but then there's a scene where uh, one of his targets is up in a hot air balloon and he pulls out an old fashioned like yarrow bow and just shoots down a hot air balloon. Uh, just, just yeah, from his how do you have on it on the yeah, spot. How, how do you have any problem with that scene, which is the greatest scene? It's the funniest rules, fucking man. thing I've ever seen <laughs> so in my good. life. I it, don't. It's 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 just so like. Is he a cold, calculating madman who's after uh, you yes. know his, his birthright treasure, or is he, he a fucking, or is he a fucking, or is he a fucking Robin Hood who thinks that he can literally do this and get away with it? It's just like. For- there's no consistency there for me. If he had planned oh. this out, if he had plotted this, if it were like, oh, you know, at this certain time, this will lose enough like uh, lift or air to, you know, to drop right over a, you know, uh, a, 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 a mile high cliff. That makes sense to me. If it's just like he's in what his apartment in this town. <laughs> what am I, 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 I talking about I'm, the movie? I'm talking about a scene in the film. Jason, there is a there is a shot of of Alec Guinness dressed as a female suffragette getting into an air balloon to spread, uh, you know, uh, pamphlets about how, how women should be able to vote, et cetera, uh, flying off into the air. It cuts to a shot of our main character with like a, like a child's bow and arrow, pulling it back about three inches out and firing it out the window, like something out of a Mel Brooks movie. And then she just fucking dies. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in like weeks. I, it was it's, great. It, it is very funny. I'm not saying that it's not funny. I'm saying that that movie, go, that this movie goes from that to later on, literally staging in about a seven minute scene, staging a man getting caught in his own hunting trap and then having his face blown off with no human, with no comedic timing to that scene at all. Nothing oh, is funny or laugh worthy at all in that scene. And it's treated as equivalent the way that the, the way that mur- Dennis to the, to the Price, hot air balloon murder, the way that Dennis price runs to, to, to get scare quotes here, help uh, for the man that he just blew the, uh, his face off of by just going help, help just like deadpan. You, that was not funny to you. That, so, so that's a misinterpretation that that's not what happened. Like oh, he it, is, it, he is putting on, a, he's clearly actually trying to sell the idea that he's getting help. I don't know why man. you think that he's, that he's deadpan. I think, I think that you're, that you're taking over exception to Aaron's reading of that scene to make up for the fact that you clearly misinterpreted the very funny scene in which, uh, Dennis I, I, I'm not hot ba- air balloon out of the air with a bow and arrow. I'm not backing down about that. Again, what? I never said it wasn't funny. I'm saying it's inconsistent with the rest of the I thing. With him being a cold, it's a totally cold calculating bastard. Humor not, of the though. film, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a. This is a hilarious dry movie about the fact that the aristocracy have always been ridiculous megalomaniac murderers. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this dude is a supervillain. He's the fucking Riddler. We good. <laughs> um, pitching in my two cents. I don't know if, uh, if Jason, this is anything that you feel you can, uh, like agree with or, or speak to. Um, I think there are a lot of good pieces in this movie that bow and arrow scene in my mind is one of them i like that scene a whole lot but i do agree that the like the leading in and leading out of because that was part of a sequence right like a montage of like multiple murders uh being done against many of the uh many members of the the das coin family right in a row um there was a certain like rhythm that i felt was missing and one thing maybe it damned my experience watching this 
like again i on the whole liked kind hearts and coronets but i couldn't help but thinking back to like when we saw that lubich series at the trilon um and just thinking thinking about like th- there were certain rhythms that like to be or not to be and nanachka and design for living had that like kind hearts and coronets i didn't like and i feel like would be pretty well suited here in ways that i can't really articulate because i'm not good at that um but i don't know just trying to bridge together the two sides of what has become a very divided divisive episode centrism very contentious uh thank you sorry thank you cody for your centrism Uh, i think part of what's playing into that for part part of what's playing into that um sort of like how that doesn't translate like i i think the comparison to lubich is good uh because it's like I think that explains I was I've seen better movies than this. And I think I'm holding against this movie that it's not as good as those movies, which is a classic. Uh, I think I like movies mistake, but I think the writing is and I think we've all touched on it. Part of what helps explain that it is in, like heavily overwritten uh, to Harry's point. There was there are whole scenes where like he'll be in dialogue with somebody and in between his line and somebody else's line. I'm sorry, his being Dennis Price, the main characters. In between his line and somebody else's line, he will say, and she didn't even realize that like blank. And then she says something that indicates that she didn't realize blank. And it's like just an incredible overwriting of some of these scenes, which maybe that's part of, you know, it being adapted from a story or being inspired by a story. Um, Maybe it's just like a a tendency of the people who wrote the screenplay. But that that led to a lot of the movie being a lot slower for me, like dry British comedy is is fine great i i grew up watching some of it on pbs through you know bbc I, like many of us i'm assuming and even you know tcm whatever was on i'm i'm accustomed to it i think it's not like it takes me by surprise but when i see it and when i laugh at it is when there's like legitimate there's time for those jokes for the comedy to be processed there's there it's not just like rapid fire one after the other uh in really thick class speak that I just don't know if this was the form for some of that humor to come through for me. I don't mean to say that like no parts of this movie were funny. I don't mean to say that there were no highs to it. I think I found a lot of the same parts funny. It's just that like it didn't have a consistency. It didn't have a rhythm to it. It was just here's a joke. Then here's 30 minutes of really dramatic interplay between characters. Then here's another joke. Then here's the end of the movie. (laughs) I wonder how much of that has to do with our lack of um, vocabulary maybe for this type of movie. Um, this might just be a sensibility that we're not super familiar with. Um, I don't know. I think that I maybe agree with you about the pacing to, to an extent. Um, I think that it's, it's just, it's strange to call this movie subtle because it's not a subtle movie, but like, for instance, with the, um, the ridiculousness of the bow and arrow kill or the um, boat collision kill that you took exception to Jason Um, in, in the sort of contemporary remake of this movie, that would be a montage, right? And it's meant to illustrate his act to sort of escalating confidence and megalomania and um, sort of um, familiarity with the things that he's doing to coincide with his, sort of homecoming arc of coming to really step into the role of dukedom which to me is the sort of second irony of this movie right is like the movie opens with this 
this very sort of, in my opinion, tired joke about the fact that like, look at that, like, look at how tremendous this juxtaposition is between the fact that this, the Duke can be a murderer. He could be a criminal. And like, we have to call him your grace, even as we send him off to be hanged. Although I found that scene very funny. But then the the second irony is that in fact, this whole movie is about the fact that uh, Louis Mazzini is perfect for the role in which he uh fulfills and in fact is like he he is taking his um birthright for true by becoming the exact sort of man that the discoys are yeah discoys have always been um and i i found that very funny and to me that's what that would have been and i just wonder if if the pacing issues that you're um alluding to are just about the way that this movie is constructed because like I'm thinking now even about the narration and how much as I didn't like elements of it, it was so part and parcel to the delivery system of this movie's system of jokes, which is in the fact that this very disaffected, very um, genteel um, Duke is enumerating these terrible crimes that he's committed and so dryly um, and with such sociopathy and such um, disaffectation for any sort of like human being um, and, and how darkly funny that is. And I'm even sort of coming around now on the, the narration itself. Right. So it's, it's, that's just interesting, I guess. That, that does speak to a good bit of interiority. And I think here's where, here's where the, the wheels are sort of clicking into place. Here's, here's where the train gets started for me, because when you talk about the sort of uh, the pacing of him getting more and more confident in his, in his plot, that actually that that's assonance to me is it gets a, that, the whole thing starts to make a little more sense. My, my heart rate has dropped. My skin has cleared. Uh, I have my, my crops are watered. I am fully moisturized. I have fewer concerns by the second about it because the more I think about it, like he goes from, uh, you know, subtle poisoning and, you know, sort of a goofy replacing paraffin with petrol in a, in the, in the hut where the guy is, uh, does all of his booze drinking to, uh, building bombs in caviar jars to literally just blowing a man's face off point blank. In He's front a of him after Magala. Yeah. Right? Like, like that makes, that makes more, when you say that just like unprompted, like, like we did earlier in the episode that, that like, I just instantly revile at it, but watching the pacing of this, watching like the sequence of events there and tying it back to his original, like his original, the whole point of the movie, right? Or at least, you know, plot point is that he starts out on a mission of revenge and ends up becoming like, he wants the position. He wants the the revenge of of getting what he wants, rather than or like and taking it from the people who he thinks don't deserve it or who robbed him of it. Uh, and he like he he never becomes that thing. He always was that thing, right? Like you were saying, Harry. He t- finds that he has it in him to to be a cold, soulless, heartless uh, psychopath because he's of <laughs> like. Uh, royal stock because he's and a, always, a and always was right yeah, and, and, and the yes. fact that he always thought of himself that way as he always i mean like the fact that we look back at him thinking as the duke he always thought of himself as the duke right he never thought of himself as the clerk or the um store assistant right he even he even said that those things were beneath him even edith herself was or not edith i'm sorry sibilia was beneath him always yeah and the fact that he always felt like that 
is why he was able so easily to become this terrifying murderer that he was because in fact that was always what was in him and the that part of him that was always in him was the um the the dukedom right was his his sort of royal bloodline <laughs> this i won't lie 10 minutes ago i was prepared to go on a letterbox and just leave a half star review of this movie and just see what everybody would say because i was so fucking angry that nobody was listening but this makes this actually makes a lot of sense uh was listening to what just like my how upset i was about some of these things that are very clearly explained when when thought about rationally i guess again i'm i'm in a mood because it's sunday evening and because work is tomorrow <laughs> uh thank you harry for ha- giving me that out do we need a temperature check you doing okay man so you doing okay you good i uh, i'm get, i'm getting angry that you're interrupting our podcast to uh to ask if we're okay I, our- it's been brought up twice now i want to make sure everybody's doing okay we're all angry. No, I, we're all raw. It's good. Yeah. It's perfect. We're, I, feel, we're doing it. I feel better about the movie as we go on. Um, so I guess if it's that clear, if it's just text, was there anything, was there any sort of undercurrent or flow or development that you saw in the movie? I guess all of us have sort of said it's interesting and in that it's like a movie at this time was doing some of these things uh, with, you know, what it's had to say about aristocracy and about class. Uh, is there anything that ran under the surface that wasn't as obvious or that like, sort of changed as you watched the movie that was, uh, that you think is worth bringing up. Both of you put your hands up and then your hands down. No, <laughs> don't, do, don't do the hands. Uh, Cody, would you like to go first? Um, I can, uh, only because this is, I think somewhat related to what we were just talking about. Um, the, so Alec Guinness is playing eight, uh, I guess technically nine, uh, members of the Dascoin family. I think he plays somebody in a flashback and there are eight, like uh, living, uh, you know, people to be killed uh, throughout the, you know, this current timeline, this current narrative. Uh, and he, I mean, doing a little bit of cursory research, it seemed like, so he was, Alec Guinness was offered the role of four members of this family. And then he read the script and thought it was hilarious. And then said, I mean, and I'm paraphrasing here. It's like, well, shit, why not just let me play all of them? Uh, and then, so they did that. Um, maybe he really said that. I don't know. Um, and that was like my first big question going into this. Cause I don't know enough about that. Again, that trope, you know, what sort of precedent had been set for that type of, of, uh, casting decision, um, as well as what immediate influence that had following the release of kind hearts and coronets. Um, Peter Sellers has, had been brought up a little bit ago. Uh, by Jason Yu, I think. And I was thinking about that too, you know, did he and Kubrick watch this and think like, say, you know, there's maybe something here. Um, but having having one person kind of be the face of the, the affluent, you know, like being the face of this family um, maybe was a better choice for like that type of, of representation versus casting uh, eight or nine or however many different individual people characterizing them each, taking the time to, to go into each person's life and backstory. Um, so I guess there are a few different ways in which it works, right? You know, as kind of like a screenwriting shortcut, you don't need to build up, you know, deaths three through seven because they're just Alec Guinness again. Like we don't need to recharacterize Alec Guinness, you know, for, for the eighth time, uh, you know, be, because we're killing him again. And I don't know if that's also like, you know, if it 
as an audience member, if that was like a more sensitive choice rather than seeing eight different people die comedically, just saying, seeing Alec Guinness die eight different times. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and I'm kind of losing. Well, they're not. The wheels are, uh, I'm derailing at this point, but I'd be curious to see what you guys thought about that too. What was that, Harry? I said, well, they're not exactly people, are they? They're the aristocracy. Exactly. Who? Uh, there was originally only four parts uh, for Alec Guinness. And he, he said that. Cody said that. No, I know, but uh, specifically I was going to read the, um, supposedly he had called the director or sent a telegram to whoever had sent him the script and said, why not eight? And then he eventually ended up playing nine in the film. Um, it seems to me like a very British bit of humor. I mean, I was surprised there honestly wasn't more uh, Alec Guinness dressed up as a woman in this. The British love that kind of humor. I'm so glad there wasn't. I, I yeah. such a tremendous sigh of relief when that, which is maybe why I also like that scene. The fact that like they did their one joke about the women's suffrage movement was like a little bit of a yellow card. And then she was just gone immediately. And it was like, oh, okay, they get it. Like they're moving on. And they didn't even give him like a single line to say as that character, which honestly, good choice. Good choice to not uh, like a high pitched fake. Yeah. Like, oh, hey. I was, you know, I was expecting a, a Mrs. Doubtfire moment. We did not have that. Um, but yeah, to, to Cody's point, I wonder what this movie would have been like with like eight different people in the, like it clearly wouldn't have had the same comedic impact. Right? It's of, so funny, man. Of eight different eight people in the same. Are yeah. so good. Um, because go ahead. Yeah. Go, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say like, he is, it's, you know, that Alec Guinness was a good actor uh, from everything else that you've seen him in, especially in 2020. But just like the the lengths to which he he defines each of these characters is just very like you know I can still remember specific um speech patterns of different characters or different you know uh or, or how each one died because of how like he's the same person with generally the same makeup just like varying degrees of eyebrows and sideburns uh but like just the fact that he was able to embody different different archetypes uh and and put them all together like that it, it's the humor comes from that, right? From knowing that it's one person in eight roles, not because any of those roles is incredibly hilarious in itself. Like you said, the 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 women's or the suffragette is a really like fun character to watch uh, while while she's on screen, and the the, the captain going out down with his ship, memorable because of how they're uh, acted, not necessarily just because of how they're written, right? I don't know if that's getting Cody at, at your prompt about what everybody felt about those things, but just I guess musing on on how essential it is that Alec Guinness was all eight of them to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely thought it was funny. It's also just such a brilliant and uh, like in this movie's humor, pitch perfect joke and fuck you to that family and to the aristocracy in general. Right. It's just like, these people are all literally the same, <laughs> like as in they're literally Alec Guinness. And uh, especially to, to go back to Aaron's early point about like, this is a story being narrated by Louis uh, Mazzini. And so like, there's a sense in which like we're getting his perception of all of these people. And the fact that they're all the same is even sort of funnier from that um, idea. Um, Jason, to to respond to one of your earlier questions about if there was anything sort of um, beneath the surface here, um, I mentioned early on that there's something more nuanced happening here. I think that my reading of that stems from that final scene that you brought up when he kills the last of the, the men he had to kill to assume the dukedom, which is where he makes his uh, 
monologue about revenge and about his mother, which struck me as very ironic um, in a way that the text allowed for um, in that to, to speak to the unreliable narration, I guess that, that Aaron brought up the things that he's saying are not even true to him at that point. Right? Like he he's making this, this speech about the idea of generational justice and about how he's doing this for his mother. But we fucking know that's not what he's doing. Like we know him for the amoral sociopathic opportunist that he is right to the point where he's discarding his childhood friend, the love of his life for a woman who is more politically expedient for him. Uh, and to, to the point where he doesn't care what happens to her. And he even takes glee in the fact that he can turn the tables on her and he has reframed their lifelong love affair as this game, this sick game of cat and mouse and one-upsmanship on class grounds, right? That's something that he did. Like, he foregrounded it um, along with her, right? I like, she sort of started it, quote-unquote, but she humbles herself before him in, like, three other scenes in this movie, which is maybe a, a pacing issue, right? But, and so, like, there there was a really interesting... Um, and, and sort of subversive reading of that scene, particularly with the court case that follows, right? Where it's like, this is supposed to be in another movie, the Count of Monte Cristo moment, right? Where it's like, we see the hero triumphant in finally having exacted his justice. And instead, it really doesn't read that way, right? Not the least of which is because he's trapped and then murders a old man at point blank range with a shotgun, <laughs> And it's it's horrible. And and then he runs off going, help, wait, no, stop. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. I thought that the fact that the character's portrayal of himself is at odds with the movie's portrayal of him so obviously and so textually, I thought, um, in, a, in a way that made this feel really nuanced, right? In a, in a way that really incriminates him, um, no pun intended. Well, and I guess that like that disconnect between self-awareness and how he's presenting is like, that's sort of revealed to me in how the, the like the singer near the very end is actually the murder that he's indicted for is it wasn't a murder at all. It was um, the suicide or I guess presumed suicide. Right. It's the one murder he didn't commit. <laughs> right. Exactly. Which, which is, you know, part of the uh, British humor, black comedy irony. Uh, but also like he didn't even consider through all of this, he didn't consider that he might be pinned for something based on one of the bridges that he burned with Sibella, right? Sibella's husband committed suicide based on, um, you know, business failings and how he knew that his wife was uh, being unfaithful to him. And he is uh, indicted on that because of Sibella's testimony. The, the fact that he is, that that's the gotcha. That's what, that's what actually puts him uh, in a, in a pinch right like his actual coronation ceremony as do or whatever that would be as duke uh is where he's uh indicted by scott by the representative of scotland yard um i guess that sort of speaks harry to like i'm just i guess i'm just surfacing one of the ideas one of the ways that the movie i think exemplifies that like that disparity between what the movie is showing us and what the character thinks about himself and it's like increasingly at at odds increasingly on different tracks until finally it's at the end. It's like, Oh, of course you should have kept this in mind. Any reasonable sociopath would have considered like, uh, 
or anybody this this dedicated to this mission would have considered all of the ways that he might have been vulnerable throughout the whole course of this story. And of course, like this was a thread that he did not consider near the end, right? And and he he right, and not to spoil the movie, but like he implicates himself, right? Like the whole the big stinger at the end of this movie. So spoilers if you want to see this for what and whatever reason are listening to this, but um he watchman style has left behind his memoirs uh in the cell and so everyone will now know of his involvement in all of the murders that made him the the man he is today um and it it's so appropriate right it's so appropriate that like he should be hoist by his own petard in this way when that is what he has made his whole life with sibylla and with edith and with everyone um and uh it's so funny that like this is supposed to be his apologia right like or it should have been except that he thought he was dead anyway. And so instead he uses it as this one final gotcha for Sibylia. And that is what ends up blowing up in his face. Um, so that's very appropriate, right? Like this, this movie ends on a very appropriate note for all of the characters involved, I think, except perhaps uh, Edith. What happens to Edith again? I mean, presumably she'll just, she's married a murderer, right? And she didn't know any better, just like she didn't know any better when her husband was not actually the um, the teetotaler that he thought himself to be because she actually believes in the noblesse oblige uh, gentility that she's heir to, even though it's so obviously a load of bullshit, right? What, what would happen if the whole thing is that the lineage will only trickle down by bloodline, right? Um, in that case, I mean, assuming that at the end of this, that the main character is pro- almost certainly... Like, the twist at the end doesn't actually really make any sense if you interrogate it, right? Like, I'm sure you could just say, like, hey, yeah. I left my book in there. Can I go get it, right? But like, <laughs> the, the hint is like, oh, oh, he is going to get caught and probably the irony is that he will be killed despite the fact that he just got off of this execution, right? Like he's going to be executed for all these other crimes. Um, what happens to the lineage of the family, to their wealth, to, are they just done at that point? Cause he killed everybody else and nobody had any heirs. Like that, I guess that's part of the humor of the situation is that he killed off his family by trying to assume the role in his family. Um, but I literally like legitimately practically what, what happens in that case? I don't know. No, yeah, no idea. Uh, he never actually like formally married either of those people, right? Uh, either Edith. No, he or did Stella. actually. He he married Edith in uh, prison. That was part of her testimony. Is she says like, "Oh, I wanted to demonstrate how much faith I had in this man by marrying him while he was in prison, right?" So I, maybe she inherits the estate. It I don't could, know. It could be. I know that like the whole thing, the whole way that like the whole uh, like plot element that this story hinges on is the fact that uh, it's a rare instance, but the family, the uh, Des Descoin family has chosen uh, that bloodline can be passed through the women in the family as well. So I, I don't know if that separation by marriage and right. by being a woman is, is like uh, sort of testing those limits. Fun to consider, but I think you're right, Aaron, that the point is in uh, all these things have been neatly tied up. And then just with one thing, with the discovery of this book, it could all just like completely fray and explode, uh, which is a, a funny implication for for like how carefully plotted most of the rest of the movie made it all out to be. Um, yeah, I 
and and just like the fact that he is in the end undone by by the tremendous cruelty that he has right where it, where it's like this was the this was such a tremendous unforced error like this whole movie was him recounting his life in order to stick it to Sibilia specifically right is that like he was leaving this behind as sort of a final uh, fuck you, you're coming down with me. The same way that she got him, right? Because like that's what this whole movie is is also sort of a stealth um, souring of a romantic relationship as these two people who presumably at one point had a real connection with one another ended up becoming poisoned by their own value systems and ambitions and love of wealth and status, right? Where like Sibilia goes on like a parallel character journey with him, which Jason, you um, had some issues with, which I think those are good issues to have. Um, those, those were some decent criticisms, but by the end, she in the first act is this person who actually has some apparent um, real wistfulness for the way things used to be. She has this sort of idealized um, understanding of her relationship with um, Mazzini back when they were children or back when they were kids. Right. And they, they were sort of like childhood sweethearts. And by the end, she's like, actually like, I'm going to have you put to death unless you murder this other woman that, uh, that you, um, we're going to marry and she's doing that in this like really twisted means of like look i'm still the one for you right because i'm just as evil as you are now like she she out mazzini's mazzini at the end of this movie and it's sort of the the um very dry tragedy in that is that like he has made her as terrible as he is right i didn't read that far into the development of that character just because like even he at the end like she didn't make the decision to leave the book. Right. So like the thing at the end of the film, the stinger is, you know, just like uh happenstance. The fact that uh, she's demanded that he marry her in order to get to be uh, acquitted is I, 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 like, it is, it is part of her um, formulation, but he, even before he's made the decision to accept it before he's even released, he's like, of course I always, I could always like, accept and then just kill her too you know like i could yeah, i could break that continues. yeah like she is she does believe that she is um like got it she has him in a bind but even he is thinking one step ahead to like well if it sucks i can always like bail <laughs> in the same way that i have bailed through the preceding like uh hour and 15 minutes of this movie um i'm coming around on this film and i don't I can't, I think I can pinpoint why. Uh, and it's that idea that he's not changing as a person. He is only revealing more and more of his own cruelty. And we laugh alongside it because of course he's cruel. He's like, he was born to be rich and he becomes rich. He becomes part of the aristocracy. He forcibly pushes himself out of the class or pulls himself into a class that he like feels like he belongs to. Um, that that's, a much stronger, more comfortable way for me to look at this movie. There's even a really interesting deterministic reading to that, right? Because his mother is the person who instilled in him that value system and that sense of birthright. Like she, she was the person who was so aghast at the fact that her family, um, uh, divested themselves of her and, and put her in exile. And she was the person who told him all about his, uh, apparent dukedom. If only, for these people. So she sort of set him off 
down this path of entitlement, which is a, an interesting reading when he um, is a, apparently setting out on this quest of righteous revenge, right? It's it's sort of like appropriate that even the the object of his righteous vengeance would herself be just as twisted as all of the others in that she constructed this uh, instrument of her vengeance through the years. Yeah, and I, I think it's also interesting that she is kind of, I mean, I do agree with what you're saying, but I think the way that you said it makes it sound like that she is, I think she's kind of maybe the only good, like if there is a kind heart actually in this movie, it is probably her, right? I think that the fact that she um, left oh, her yeah, she, she didn't like, right, she didn't like yeah. train him, right? Yeah. I, I didn't mean to say, yeah, you're right. Yes, the, this is not the Joker, although there are some weird comparisons, uh, but yeah, I, I think that it is interesting that she specifically chose to give up uh, a life of wealth and comfort, uh, specifically to marry somebody who she actually really loved. And that kind of set all of this in motion. Um, I had not thought about that. Right. And and like here we had another story of two people who were once presumably really in love. And then look what happened to that. Yeah. Um, side note, it is very funny to hear them talking about like, how she fell into poverty after being cut off from the family. And it's still like a beautiful uh, mansion sized townhouse in West, uh, in West yeah. London. And it's like, all right, all right. I think most people watching this movie can say, sure, Jan. Uh, I think real estate was just really cheap back then. Housing prices were it, nothing like they are right now. It just cost blood and, uh, and the lives of the people beneath you. Yes. I am. Uh, I am going to start tying off my thoughts about this movie. Anybody else have any uh, remainders? Any dregs? Uh, I th- thought it was interesting. The source novel for this uh, has a Jewish main character again by Roy Horniman. Correct? Roy, literally Roy Horniman. Yes. Uh, Israel Rank, the autobiography of a criminal. Uh, it had a Jewish main character, and they removed it because they were actually concerned that. Uh, the movie would come off as anti-Semitic, specifically the kind of scheming nature of the main character, the way that he uh, kind of manipulates other people and specifically other women uh, was, yeah. Could yeah, be wow. This is a pretty, pretty woke movie then, huh? Well, yeah. that's the that makes the shit at the end of this movie like so weird. It's like this movie, like that is, a, I think, a... Uh, a good change to make in 1949 and like yeah. very interestingly considered, you know, uh, what? that's that, that, that like, you're right. It makes that the, the, the N word stuff at the very end, that much more galling, like not only as like a quote unquote artistic choice to write it that way, but that the people funding this movie, the people releasing it, the people editing it and producing it were like, mm, we can't have the main character be Jewish, but, Multiple people can say the N word at the end of this movie, and it's it's cool for British audiences. And then only yeah. when it started coming to like North America, where they like mm, we have a history with that word, and you guys too, but like let's not over here. Let's use sailors instead. Um, on the note of this movie's various yellow cards, there was one other one that I don't think we touched on. Uh, the um, uh, Louis for one of the sequences in the movie is attempting to uh, murder the boring pastor Das coin. Um, and to, it, he's posing as a sort of clergyman and ah, good, yeah. uh, to gain his, his trust. He 
I didn't quite follow this admittedly, but he starts telling a story about how, uh, you know, he was doing some kind of service or was having some kind of interaction with uh, a group of native peoples. And he gives a quote unquote, gigantic air quotes, uh, sampling of what this tribe's language was. And he starts making nonsense noises that, uh, the movie plays off as a joke. Um, I guess to condemn the, uh, streaming service that I rented this movie from the subtitle, uh, because team subtitles, um, just said native gibberish. Um, but I guess to condemn me too, I did watch this on Amazon. Um, so maybe that explains a lot. Um, didn't want that to go unsaid, uh, but that also sucked. Yeah. Two points. One, I think that scene in particular is the scene that I was thinking of when I said that I had some issues. I think that scene just sucks right? Like not, not just in terms of like being problematic. I also just think it's legitimately not a funny or good scene and it's long and it like stuck out. It stuck out in my mind as like, like most of the murders in this uh, movie are pretty funny. And that one is just not at all. And it's like maybe the longest one. And that was sort of a bummer. Um, Go ahead, Cody. Oh, sure. I was just going to say, I agree. Um, I think they needed, unless I'm forgetting one that seemed like it was the scene where they allowed Alec Guinness to riff a little bit. It just seemed like the, the old boring relative uh, was an odd choice for him to be riffing off of. Um, Definitely not the more interesting choice, but yeah, I agree. That sequence went uh, a little bit long. IMO. It did. I, I justified that like the length and drag of that scene specifically because they talk about that character. I think it's Henry, uh, de Havilland or whatever um who is the clergyman the the priest of the family uh and they make allusions to like him being the the sort of the stupid one of the family the one who couldn't who couldn't be part of the aristocracy properly so he instead went into the church and like that is why the scene is so long and boring is because he's long and boring like he's just very yeah it's definitely pointed right like they're doing that it, yeah, it, that's a good point. It's it's not like it makes it a more fun scene to watch. I agree it did drag on and like by the end of it you're like, yeah, just just fucking kill him and get it over with. Just leave. He ends up poisoning the port and uh and just leaving the man to 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 be discovered as if he was um as if he hard as all of the characters are right where like he's talking about his yeah. love of court and then uh Louis is like, "Well, I figured and I ended up being right that um the doctor would find him with this empty bottle of port and just describe it to overconsumption and be kind and say it was a heart attack. So it's funny because like all of these characters end up dying of something sort of um, poetic, including in the end Mazzini. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I do think that, uh, Oh, sorry to cut you off. No, I'm sorry. I was going to go to something else. So please. Well, I was going to say that the, the murder specifically of uh, general Lord Rufus was, or it was an Admiral Lord Horatio, the one who the, the kind of, I don't know, imperialist shithead, the war general. um, I think that it's kind of interesting in relation to the, the murder of the Reverend and that it is kind of going for some of the same things and that uh, he is just describing basically killing a bunch of South Africans and he keeps just telling this extremely boring story. And that the way that he is killed is that uh, there is what, like a, a jar of caviar that the main character puts a bomb into, um, which the old all the caviar time, IED classic. All the other ones are like, okay, this guy, bangers, dude. yeah, th- this, this person drowned in a boat. Uh, this person went over a waterfall. This person was poisoned, but the, you can't tell that it's poison. This guy got blown up by like a fucking stick of dynamite 
in a restaurant. I, that never comes up again in a way that almost, I find almost actually certainly great. almost certainly kills everybody else there too, right? Yeah, <laughs> he like, not an atom remained of him, and he just feels okay. I mean, yeah, I guess they were all serving him and all sort of kissing his ass, so they probably deserve to die as well. Um, no honor. Uh, um, I was going to talk about the N-word scene because it is really a terrible, uncomfortable thing. Um, I'm not defending it at all. Like, I want to make that clear. It was a weird thing to experience at the end of this movie about these monsters because it, it was very it was there was like a very contemporary reading of it that I have no idea if it has any bearing textually. I uh, I sort of think it doesn't, but I don't know either way like what the British relationship to the N word was in the 1940s. Um, to me, it was like really strong evidence of the monstrousness of both of these people. Right. The fact that they said it that casually, and then he applied it like as part of his speaking metaphor right afterwards, I was like, Oh yeah, these people are absolute monsters. And the reason they're absolute monsters is because they like, play into this power structure. So of course they would use a word like that. It is totally in keeping with their whole ideology on how they see other human beings, including each other. Um, that being said, I don't think that the, I'm not willing to give the movie credit for that. It was just an interesting um, sort of extrapolation of the movie's points that accidentally sort of felt appropriate if uh, still a bummer. Yeah, I think, as far as my reading of that scene, I think accidentally is the key there. Uh, the fact that, you know, it got through one sort of sensor and not another uh, is, is telling to me that it like was written as just a phrase, a turn of phrase rather than a, like another peak. That into seems the, probable. Into right? the characterization. I just have no idea. Yeah. It, it's impossible to know. I, it's hard to say, it's weird to say that I like that rationale because it does make me dislike those characters more. And like, uh, empathize more with the people who want to see them come to harm. But I just don't know that I internalize the idea that he's using that language. And I guess multiple people use that language because they are horrible people. And because they are so detached from human decency uh, that they, that they would, you know, that it's natural that they know that that phrase. Uh, yeah. I mean, of, it's just know, a, tiger it's a or sailor. Yeah. It, uh, right. Because especially because that's a real nursery rhyme that people actually did say at one point. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, just like the fact that it like it was something that they did as wealthy children in particular was sort of interesting to me. Yeah, uh, but still, yeah, you're right. Um, that being said, like I don't trust American censors at all either, right? So you're right; it is difficult to know. Um, but it is a bummer, and we should have like a content warning about that, right? Because it sucks to, yeah. to like hear that uh, in a 1940s movie. Right at the end, too. It's I don't know what the fuck it is. We just about Damn. British comedies just having a fucking terrible zinger right at the end that ruins it. <laughs> it's uh, it's not great. Um, is everybody dry? The well dry for, for most folks here? Do we have any, any last thoughts? All right. Uh, Harry, you want to join me in uh, our, our lead up to the next segment I, I of our show? For the next segment of our show, which is called Cody's Melodies. We almost got it that time. Almost. We got, we got uh, it. Don't worry. I can edit it. We, I'll tune put it in together. next week for another rendition of that theme song. Uh, hi, I'm Cody. Um, I've got a few noties. Uh, first uh, is very on brand for me um, because I have the Criterion Collection on my mind because they're doing a 50% off sale right now. 
50% off sale right now at this moment at the time of this recording. Uh, Kind Arts and Coronets did get a Criterion release, uh, Spine Number 325. It is a title that is out of print, though. Bummer for you all, uh, Kind Hearts fans out there. The Coronettos. Let's be honest. Pro- if you can afford Criterions, you're a Coronet. Yeah, that's very fair point. Um, not to say that it will never come back into print. Um, they have a thing that they're doing now where they are redigitizing. That's certainly not a phrase. Um, but they're doing, you know, they're they're bringing them them back. So you know, maybe in the future that'll get a nice refresh. Um, some of us watched them uh, watched it on streaming services, so it is available. It's not lost to the annals of time and space yet. Um, the far more interesting noty uh, in my mind. Uh, I got thinking about what the if there is a a um recorded like singular record for most characters played by one performer in a movie um so assuming the three of you haven't looked this up you have no prior knowledge of it um and without looking it up right now i would be curious to get y'all's guesses for what that number is um i've got the answer here uh, holy shit but, what a good but, question but the num the the number of characters so the the world record, and I'll give the full details. But what what do you think the total is for the number of characters played, and it is the most by a single character in a movie? What do you think that number is? Uh, Jason, sixty one. Uh, can we ask any sort of like? Is this a movie or is this is this something we know about? Is it going to be like you're going to mention it and we're going to be like, oh shit, yeah? It is not a movie I would expect anyone to know about. Mm-hmm. If that's what you're asking. 61's a pr- I'm going to go I'm going to go 20 uh 20 uh 28 28 I can't like I'm not going to price this right Aaron and be like 29 or 27 uh man that's I have no idea 61 is a lot but I want that to be the right answer uh but I'm going to go with like 15 uh 18 I'll do 18 Perfect. I so eighteen. I will do some math when the time comes. Um, I hey, am just. I, re- can I ask? Go ahead. What math do you need to do? <laughs> you have a number. It, you need to do ba- basic math to, to see who is closest. Um, <laughs> I uh, look. I I majored in basic arithmetic at university, but I am so far out of practice. I don't use it at on a day to day basis. At university, who are you, Harry Potter? Jesus uh, Christ! The British hey, cinema has caught up with me. Can I ask? Uh, would we know the actor? Because that no. will give me a lot of. Oh, okay. That's no, too you bad, would not. But sure. Uh, I agree. Um, but yeah, I won't go prices red rules for this uh, because that's silly. Um, I'm reading from the GuinnessWorldRecords.com entry. Alex Guinness World Records. <sighs> yeah, I watch. I should have known better. Uh, most characters played by one actor in a single film. The actor is Johnson George, uh, who portrayed um in the indian film titled aranu nijan um in the year 2017 a total of 45 different characters including gandhi jesus and leonardo da vinci um so the guess of 61 uh assuming my basic math is correct uh, that was yeah closest by one um so yeah that was verified back in 2018 uh so congratulations to to Jason and congratulations to Johnson George for holding a world record for a pretty cool thing. I think. Yeah. Well played Jason. Well played Johnson George. I should see that movie. It sounds fucking wild. That sounds incredible. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, it a six, but 
Yeah. Uh, on the note of like accessible cinema, um, this movie doesn't even have a letterboxed entry uh, from what I could find. So oh, it yikes. is, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's buried there uh, as far as the arts go, hopefully within our lifetime, that and other worthy works will rise to the surface and we'll be able to, to watch great performances, uh, you know, in the convenience of our own homes or uh, at exhibition places like the trial on cinema. Can you imagine if they showed this one day, that would be wild. Uh, be wild. Cody, I don't know if you're trying to be funny. Um, I I really can't tell sometimes uh, with you. Uh, This movie is in fact going to be playing at the trial on go to trial.org for, for tickets. Um, Guys, you should know how close I, how close I was to guessing 64. And that would have put me out of the ballpark. Holy shit. I am shaking. I am shaking. I need some, I need some sugars. I need some lipids back in my body. need to start building proteins again. I am low on nutrients after all of that stress. Um, Okay. Cody, was that the end of your noties? Those, those were the noties. Fuck. Yes. Incredible noties. Thank you for gamifying our podcast for a little bit. Noties. You should, you should do more random. It's probably a lot of work to think of those kind of noties, but I was like, damn, that's a good ass note. Entertain us, Cody. On a day day where I, uh, not to rub it in on a day where I don't need to go to work in the morning, I should have put more. I, in the future, I think I could put more, uh, game effort into, into these. I'll, I'll think of little fun twists to keep you all on your, on your goofy little toes. <laughs> a goofy movie uh, toes. Do we have any um, recommendations? Parasite. Wow. Um, no, that's uh, a good recommendation. I can't. I can't beat Parasite. Uh, I mean, in any, in any, take that in all of the meanings. Uh, as far as like movies with uh, like people taking on multiple roles, um, the first two that I thought of were Holy Motors and Enemy. Um, both of those movies are very good. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is just playing two different people in Enemy. That's not a spoiler. Um, he's portraying two different characters. Uh, Holy Motors um, is, well, it's not like that, and I won't say a whole lot about it. Uh, but they're both great films. Y'all should watch. Holy them. Motors is a great recommendation. That also, I don't know. That's a that's a wild one to watch after this. I think. Yeah, I I agree. Definitely. A wild one to watch in, in any manner, I think. But uh, yes, that that is that has excellent scenes of what you were talking about. Um, I guess I've got uh, maybe two, one of which I haven't seen, so your mileage may vary. I've heard that the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is good. Um, it that's is the um, yeah, the Louis um, Bonnell movie, and I think it's on Criterion recently, so you could check that out. Uh, um, Sorry, quick cut in. I believe that left the channel uh, somewhat recently, but I think it is still available in places. And, oh God, I think that also falls under the category of had a Criterion release, but is currently out of print. So get your shit together, Criterion. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, It is available though, and people should watch it because it's a lot of fun. And then uh, last December, um, Cody and I saw The Rules of the Game, the 1939 French satirical comedy. Um, by Jean Renoir, Renoir, uh, um, and uh, that's that's also good and similar in in tone in some ways to this one. So uh, maybe check that out if you're interested in that. Thanks everybody for your recommendations. Um, brave Harry, brave to bring up a recommendation for a film you haven't seen. Uh, I really hope that that one turns out for all of our rabid. Well, listeners. I may be a fraud, but I am a bold 
fraud. <laughs> it's what's got me this far. You're a bold kid, Harry. A bold kid. <laughs> Whew. Uh, that's for another podcast. Don't worry about that. Um, all right. Well, that has been our episode about Kind Hearts and Coronets, 1949 film. Playing at the Trilon soon. Uh, go to trilon.org if this conversation... I can't imagine the audience of this conversation, uh, but if you've been at all interested in what this movie sounds like or, or what kind of tone it strikes, uh, buy tickets at tryline.org um, and uh, support local your local movie theaters uh, in a time of need. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can find my podcast, Trilove, uh, on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema, the cinema we talk about, at Trilon Cinema. I've been Cody. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Um, I'm Harry. Sorry I was crabby this time. As we've been talking about, it is Sunday, in fact, in case you forgot. Uh, you can also find Jason's other podcast, Mintracks, uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Uh, it's very good. You should check it out. Jason, I don't think you said that, so I'm going to do that for you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Sunday is the worst day of the weekend. Nobody talks about this. It's almost as bad as a weekday, actually. Uh, I feel like everybody talks about that, dude. Yeah, everybody does talk about it. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. I deprecated the retiring so early, but it was hard to blame them. For weekends, like life, are short. Yes! 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 Hell Fuck yeah. yeah. I turned yeah, it turn Aaron and I said, that's going to be the line. Oh. We did up the entire episode. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Fuck Beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Ring oh. for yelling yes in the I'm... back. <laughs> I feel like you need to fit in the end of the episode, right? No, no definitely. <laughs>